You are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, an extension of birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Here, my friends, we get personal, we get political, we talk business, we talk shit, we talk pleasure. We learn and unlearn and find growth by embodying practices of healing and justice. I'm your host, Eri Guajardo Johnson. My pronouns are she and they. Let's dive in. Welcome, friends. Welcome and welcome, listeners. Mickey, there's a lot of folks out there of a variety of backgrounds, some who grew up with ancestral traditions as part of their growing up experience, and a lot who are doing that journey as adults. And so this episode is for them for people who can see themselves reflected in your story, you know? So thank you so much for being here. To start us off, Mickey, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, my name is Mikaela McHenry, also known as Mickey. Yes, like the mouse. Um, my pronouns are she, her, ea. I come from Lakota, Apache, and Mexica um, parteras, healers, storytellers, and farmers. I'm a full-spectrum traditional birth worker and now the operations manager of the Birth Bruja platform, as well as the co-host for the Birth Bruja podcast. I'm passionate about building community and working with families during spiritual and physical transitions from preconception all the way to parenthood and potentially beyond as my work changes. Yes, yes. Y'all, you heard that right. Mickey agreed to not only be the operations manager of Birth Bruja, but also co-host for this podcast. So y'all will be hearing her sweet voice and her wisdom in future episodes. Friends, straight up, I'm just so pumped. And in case I don't, I assume you can hear because Manny the cat has a really strong singing voice. Manny is singing songs. So if you hear a cry, it is Manuel. And yes, I already fed him. Is there, <laughs> do you want to introduce your child in the background? <laughs> um, yes. Today, my child, Martin, who is a little blonde Yorkie, will be joining us. So sometimes you'll hear um, his little pitter patter on the floor. But I'll try to keep it to a minimum as I hold him like he requires. <laughs> like he requires. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends. So let us start off, if it's cool with you, let's start off with the wording, traditional birth worker. I know some folks may be hearing this for the first time. Would you mm-hmm. mind speaking a little bit to what you mean when you say that? So when I say traditional birth worker, I mean that I'm incorporating my ancestral lineages into my work. And I think that it's important to do so in a way that not only respects and honors my ancestors, but respects and honors other lineages at the same time. So I make sure that I acknowledge that in everything that I do. And that's why I like the title traditional birth worker versus indigenous birth worker. I don't believe that I speak for all indigenous people, even as an indigenous person myself. I think that every tribe and every lineage has something different to offer. And so I believe that it's important to focus on 
the importance of, of our words. And with that being said, a lot of my focus is on the spirituality and the holistic healing that comes with these life changes. Mm. So I know what you just said just now, those two pieces are not actively present in mainstream birth work. Is there anything else you could point out for folks uh, that could be major differences between the positionality of a traditional birth worker compared to mainstream? Yeah, I would like to point out that I am mainstream trained because I thought that that was necessary and it's actually not. So I was traditionally trained and I kind of like fell into this naturally. However, I thought that in order to charge for my services, because I didn't know the term doula at the time, I thought in order to charge for my services that I had to have this special certification. And turns out I don't. And that was a waste of money. (laughs) For me, when I think about traditional, it's knowledge that's passed down, for example, like a parthera. And and that's where my knowledge comes from, is a parthera and my grandmother and in my family. And it's really important that that knowledge is passed down so that we can continue to use it for future generations. And I was doing the work well before I even knew what the work was. I didn't have a name for it. And I started Googling, like, how can I charge for this? Because I'm beyond a babysitter. I'm beyond a newborn specialist. And I was finding that when I was coming into homes, I was doing more caretaking of the parent, of the birth giver, than I was of the baby. And don't get me wrong. I love babies. I think babies are the best after dogs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I found that I was using this knowledge that I had, and I thought it was normal to treat birthing folk like this. Like, I just assumed that that's what you did. And especially people that come from Latin American or, or even Latinx culture, it's known that when you have a baby, there are special rules that A lot of people follow one of them being like the quarantena, and that's the 40 days after postpartum. And essentially the birthing person is given time and space to bond with that new baby and and with their partner. And things like cooking and tending to other children can often be left to family members, and that's totally normal and not unheard of. And I think with the westernized family unit, you're seeing more and more where a birthing person and their partner are essentially left to fend for themselves. And it can be really hard. And I was finding more and more that there was an interest in what I was doing across all sorts of people with different backgrounds. And people were wanting to pay me. And I was like, my reaction was like, you can't pay me for this. It's, It's medicine. And apparently they could and they wanted to and I shouldn't take the joy um, from others for Mm. repaying me. I was wondering if you could first begin with some of the earliest memories because I know a lot of folks who are raised in western right colonized culture Mm -hmm. um, birth is something that is never discussed especially in childhood it's it's literally deemed inappropriate yeah right? Uh, For children to witness or be present for or really discuss. And so for many folks, like they can't fathom what it could be like to grow up in a space where, you know, pregnancy, birth and postpartum is just woven into the fabric of life. So I was wondering if you would please share 
What are some of your earliest memories of this sort of birth culture? One of my favorite ones, because it's been coming up a lot for me lately, is my grandmother would dream of fish when someone in our family was pregnant. And I remember sitting at the table and I'm the I'm the oldest of of all the grandchildren and of my siblings, obviously. I had a, a little brother at, at the time, like my brother had already been born and, and it, I was probably about five. And my grandmother and I were sitting at the table and my aunt comes in and she sits down and my grandmother goes, are you pregnant? <laughs> and my aunt's like, I don't think so. She's like, I dreamt of fishes. And I remember being like, what does that mean? And like, understanding that at the time, like understanding that dreams were a way of communicating with ancestors and understanding that as a child, I thought was totally normal, right? And so I I wanted to dissect that further and, you know, ask questions like any curious kid, like, how do you know that that's what that means? And my grandmother said that every time she's been close to somebody that got pregnant, including her sister's she would dream of fishes. And I don't think she delved into the symbolic meaning of it. And if she did, I was too young to remember that. But I, every time my grandmother would want to share a dream with me, I always assumed it was going to be about fishes. But my aunt was pregnant. <laughs> and it it just was thinking like, how, how did she know before my aunt took a test, right? And trusting that my grandmother was right in a society that tells us like everything needs to be proven scientifically and I think that that moment and that time realizing that like other kids didn't have that experience when I went to school I I don't know why I remember telling somebody that my aunt was going to have a baby and they asked if she went to the doctor and I was thinking like no she's not sick (laughs) and realizing that people went to the doctor to find these things out or to receive care and and me being like totally blown away by that because I I thought that you went to the doctor if you were sick or like just a a checkup I didn't realize that pregnancy required a doctor visit and if if that is something that makes somebody more comfortable or you know I'm not saying that that's not okay I just in our family that wasn't the norm And I just kind of was the helper for everything. We were very close, my grandmother and me, we still are. And any baby that came around, I learned how to take care of. And I I learned how to help prepare foods and teas. And my earliest memories of doing that and spending time in the kitchen and in the garden, I was kindergarten age or first grade age. And as I got older, which is common, I think, in a lot of Latinx families is I kind of became like the second mom to my siblings and my cousins. And a lot of eldest daughters fall into that that role, but it just seemed so normal. And as I got even older, my friends started having babies or classmates, and I just knew things. They would ask questions or they would make a comment and I would say oh that means xyz and and I remember people being like but you don't have children like how do you know this did you read a book and I'm like this is just ingrained into me and part of me and part of who I am and and people were grateful and hungry for that knowledge and willing to listen and it was the first time 
in my life that I really felt like I knew what I was doing. I always wanted to take care of people, but I didn't know how or what that would look like. And I was in college at this point. I had no idea I could make a living or have a career, I guess you could call it, out of birth work, aside from being a midwife. And I didn't want that part. A lot of my focus is on postpartum, and, and that's the part that I I really love and I put a lot of work into. And I didn't know that people were going to pay for I just thought people got nannies or took their kids to daycare if they needed that or their families helped them. That was a big assumption that I was very wrong about. So on that note right there, because what you're describing in essence, right, is like cultural differences. And so you mentioned at the beginning when you brought in some aspects of your identity, right, about Lakota, Apache, Mahika, between those cultures within your families, was there any differences that you saw? Or was that more or less across the various kind of cultures, there was just a lot of alignment? There were a lot of similarities, yes. A big difference was the medicines used. And I believe that part of that was based on the lands that the people originated from, right? So it's hard to pinpoint exact differences aside from ingredients. The practices can be really similar and there's a lot of overlap. That's awesome. I just ask because I know, as you mentioned, indigenous cultures are very different, Mm -hmm. but also can have a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. And also as someone who comes from different cultures wrapped up in one body, (laughs) I know that there can be conflict, like direct conflict of ideology or or of approaches or, you know, Mm -hmm. cultural standpoints. And so I was just wondering if that was part of your journey, because I know within our friendship, that's one of the things that we've talked about has been part of your journey, bringing this medicine that is so interwoven into your bones Mm -hmm. and then bringing it into a world Uh, especially colonized world, right? Where there's a lot of people out there who are very different from you, whether they're white folks or whether they're not white, but just are hella assimilated into this culture. And I know that this aspect of having ancestral practices that are so sacred to you and are so important to you, I know that a lot of birth workers out there echo that sentiment, but then also not necessarily struggle, but, you know, there's there can be challenge in navigating how to protect and uplift and maintain your medicine while engaging within colonized culture, where colonized mm-hmm. culture just wants to exploit and devalue and all those. But would you mind sharing how it's been as an adult when you decided to transition into seeking this as a professional shape? So... I will say in the beginning, I thought that there was a right way to do things. And my belief was that the right way was the westernized way to go through a training, which by the way, was only a weekend. So I don't understand why that was okay. Not saying that it's not saying that it's, it wasn't valuable, right? I think that it was important reminders or important to understand certain aspects, especially about how the MIC works or medical industrial complex works. So my issue with that was that this is something that somebody spends their whole life doing. 
my grandmother's first birth as a partera, she was 16, right? So she spent her whole life doing this until she was told it was illegal because she wasn't a nurse or whatever. So I thought that there was a special way that I had to do this. And I thought that it was a westernized way. So I kept searching for how do I do this or what is this work that I'm doing? And I was being told that a lot of the things that I assumed were normal or thought were normal in, in the caregiving aspect that I would do for clients was bad, that I wasn't allowed to do that, that it wasn't in my scope, that I wasn't trained to do this or that I wasn't knowledgeable enough to share this. And I really struggled. I struggled to find clients because I think I was so resentful of the fact that I was being told that if I practice in this aspect or if I practice using this certificate that I could only do so much before I was breaking rules. And I was definitely feeling lost. Like I did the wrong thing. Like this isn't what I want to do. I don't like this. I don't think it's okay. And I really struggled with that because I kept thinking like, why can't I just do what I was doing before? And then I realized like, who's going to tell on me? Not, (laughs) not that like, I'm doing something illegal or wrong, but, but who's going to report back to the certifying agent and be like, she made me tea and said it was good for X, Y, Z, you know, so she was doing something outside of her scope. So I was just like, you know what, I'm just gonna do what I know is best. And that's how I'm going to be happy in this work and feel fulfilled is, is doing what I was taught was best and what I was living by already. So I thought, let's just see how far I can go doing it the way that I think. And if that doesn't work, maybe reevaluate and go back to the professionalized way of doing this. And when I let go of the expectation that I would have to follow these rules, the clients started coming in and the opportunities started coming in. And I started to feel fulfilled by the work and I started to feel supported by my ancestors, by my clients, by my, I felt supported by the earth and I felt like it was the right thing and I was doing the right thing. One reminder that I thought was really helpful in differentiating professionalized birth work versus traditional birth work was I am the medicine. Nobody can tell me that I have to practice in a specific way if I'm the medicine. And I think realizing that and really honoring that is what changed the way that I practice and what I call myself. And sometimes I'll use the term doula interchangeably, but I do like to emphasize the traditional part. And that's that I was trained before I was trained by a certifying agent. And the certifying agent did prove to be helpful during COVID in order to enter the hospital, but otherwise I don't really see a huge benefit in, in having done that. For many birth keepers, their start into the work was very focused on the clients. And then the more that they, I guess, immerse themselves in the work professionally, the more that they started to feel a deep calling for community organizing or political action around birth justice right? Reproductive justice. Was birth justice and reproductive justice 
decolonizing birth, were those things that from the get-go into this professional shape, you knew that you wanted to prioritize? Or was that something that came at a later point for you? It actually started pretty early, but I didn't incorporate it into my work because I wasn't sure how people would respond as far as agreeing with my positionality on on reproductive justice, right? And so at 15, I was like a peer counselor for Planned Parenthood and discussed like safe sex and access and abortion. And I just volunteer doing this work. And I've always had those values. Those values were ingrained to me because it ultimately is not my body, right? So even if I don't, even if it's something I wouldn't do myself, I would never tell somebody else that they couldn't for abortion, for example. So I actually strayed away from incorporating that into my work because I used to think that it would make people uncomfortable. And I was afraid of that uh, as a people pleaser, a recovering people pleaser, really tried to stay neutral. And then I realized that I wasn't neutral in any way. And leaving one part out of that wasn't doing me a service. And by kind of keeping my political beliefs, if you will, out of my work, I was complying with the professionalized birth industrial complex and in a way that didn't reflect like my values. So I was doing something that I knew was wrong or whatever to avoid hurting someone else when it wasn't wrong in any way. It's not wrong to fight for other people. It's not wrong to educate. It's not wrong to help people find their voices and help them advocate for themselves. And it's not wrong to speak up about what I believe in, whether somebody else is uncomfortable or not. I think like it was always there, like snippets of it, but I wasn't really in your face (laughs) with it until probably about the past like four or five years. As I as I got as I've gotten older, I kind of care less what people think. And I used to think that that was cheesy when people would tell me that, but it's it's true. It's happened. It's the best. It is so great. I just don't (laughs) care anymore. (laughs) To answer your question in short, no, I did not always. And now I do, and I think it's important, and I think all birth workers should, even if it's not something that I agree with. If your positionality is opposite of mine, I think it's really important that you use your voice and that you understand that using your voice means that someone will hear you. That could be good, that could be bad, or it just can be. Yeah, no, I mean, (laughs) that's really deep. Like, it's a responsibility, Using Mm -hmm. our voice, like straight up in this role as a a birth worker, Mm -hmm. it is a responsibility when we use our voice and when we choose to remain silent both ways, right? Choosing to remain silent does not save us from having to interact with that impact of responsibility. So I was born and raised in Michigan and Midwest culture is very quote unquote polite, which I know I'm doing air quotes here because it's passive aggressive as fuck. And um, so there's a lot of, and it's very much tied into Christian culture. And so there are certain things that are deemed unpolite to talk about, right? Politics being one. I know that there's a lot of folks who grew up in those sort of situations into adulthood. And yeah, they feel uncomfortable talking about political 
notions and political notions, y'all, when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about concepts and words such as feminism and racism and homophobia and xenophobia, right? Like these isms, these conversations, they've been around forever, right? However, with social media, they are integrating into mainstream culture in a, in a different way. I know a lot of birth workers who can have opinions around women's rights and LGBTQ rights, you know, like they have state, you know, standpoints on that. However, they don't talk about it or they don't weave it in. And so this notion of how do I do that can be really overwhelming for people. And so this is a long ass entry, but whatever, I'm a verbal processor. So Mickey, if you're down friend, I was wondering if maybe we could take a few moments to share a little bit of examples of what it can look like for us in our practices to be implementing these quote unquote politics. Go first, you're thinking. Okay. All right. Keep going. One of the things I did was I started to share my identity, aspects of my identity. Instead of just saying a Latina or a Latinx person, I say mixed race or biracial because that experience specifically of being biracial is a positionality, it's a lens. And that speaks to people who share that in common with me or who are in mixed relationships, you know, so that had a lot of power. And then I wove it in when I claimed my queer identity. Like the more I understood myself in a political context, the more I understood the lenses through which I saw the world, you know, lenses of due to privilege and marginalization. So the more I was able to articulate that for myself, again, not just of how I viewed the world, but how I understood and viewed myself, then I was able to determine how to use my power. I was able to determine to navigate like the uncomfortability of people thinking less of me or thinking differently of me, you know, like navigating that tension versus actually embracing the fact that if people, especially right, I'm back in Michigan now. So if people out here are uncomfortable with the fact that I name that I'm queer in my, in my bio or I name my race, right. That are being mixed race. If I name, if I bring that up, then actually now where I'm at is that gives me power because that means that I probably or actually fully don't really want to work with those folks, right? I don't want to prioritize my time and energy for that because there's a lot of other people who could see themselves reflected or and or appreciate that positionality and would want to work with me because of it. So like that was one example of weaving in quote unquote my politics into my doula practice. And then the other two will be a lot quicker, I promise y'all. I wove into my business model a percentage every month of all the funds that I make through my birth work. I contribute to indigenous and or black folks. So sometimes, a lot of times it's individuals, uh, birth workers, but sometimes it's organizations. And so that was an active part of my business model. And then lastly, it's about the language I use when I communicate with my clients. So if we're talking about hospital culture and someone's kind of tiptoeing around feeling uncomfortable or tiptoeing around how to navigate the power dynamics in the hospital culture, I will use words such as patriarchy. So I say like, well, friend, like what you're describing is a patriarchal culture. So I just want to remind you that while we may be used to it, because for those who are able to have access to medical care growing up or insurance growing up, a lot of us are trained 
to be small, quiet, still shaped because of the patriarchal culture. Patriarchal culture tells us that the doctor specifically, most of the time an older male white doctor, has the power and we don't. And so we should do everything to stay in line and acknowledge that power dynamic. By using the term patriarchy, I'm able to weave in words that have deep meaning. And in that, I'm able to, with my client, go from macro to micro, right? Like go from wide lenses and understandings of culture and then narrowing down into specific understandings of their experience within their family, within their culture. Weaving in the political is not getting on your soapbox per se and having a long speech and then handing them, you know, your list of politicians that you want them to vote for. So the way that I weave it into my work now is through well one through community care so I still want to work and do work with organizations that would service people from my direct community um, not just by geographical location but I grew up extremely poor and my family was on WIC and food stamps so I do like to give back to other families that maybe couldn't afford services by taking free clients when I can. I can't always, and I think that's okay. I don't think it's fair to assume that I always can. But when I can, I absolutely will. And when I feel called to, I will. So I do try to give back directly to families that mirror the family that I grew up in. I also try to work with the organizations that also do that. Additionally, I am very outwardly spoken in regular every day about issues that affect all of us, um, systemic oppression, right? Poison within assimilation and academia and all of that. And it's just a part of who I am. I've embodied it so much that these conversations just kind of fit in naturally. And like you, Ari, if, if somebody is having trouble naming the experience or, or putting that together, I do like to help point it out. Like it is patriarchy. It is racism. It is homophobia. And having those conversations openly and honestly gives other people permission to have their conversations and live their truth openly and honestly. And I think that, like you said, with trying to be polite, even if it's in a passive aggressive way, trying to be polite only stifles us and takes our voice and takes our power. I don't think you should be going around saying fuck you to everyone, even, you know, sometimes it is warranted. But I, I do think that it's important that you are true to yourself before you're true to anyone else. So it is important to have those conversations. And um, I think that is one of the, the easiest things that us as birth workers and doulas and midwives and whatever your title, that's the easiest way that we can weave that into our practices is having those open conversations, is giving back to our communities and to our clients and, and to our families and to ourselves and believing in ourselves and trusting ourselves enough that our position on these issues and our understanding of what it looks like to break down colonial systems and, and why that work is important, trusting that we know those answers and that we do have the power to make a change, even if it's not a huge visible change, right? Like even if the whole hospital system isn't destroyed, we can make change if we keep embodying and having these conversations and speaking our truths. We can make change even if it's just for one person or one family. And I think that 
a lot of people get caught up in the overwhelm because they're not seeing these results as, as remarkable, but they're remarkable for somebody else because it changes their whole life. I think even beyond conception, right, having these conversations with people that they understand their options for birth control and that if they don't have access to it, a way of ways to get birth control, whether it's um, synthetic birth control or, or natural birth control or, or what are their options for contraception in general, that conversation can be really uncomfortable for people, especially young people, especially religious people. And it's our duty to make sure that people have the knowledge. And that's all I have. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Man, oh, that was so beautiful. That was so beautiful. I mean, honestly, friend, looking at the time, we need to start closing. So I have one last question for you. Although I just want to say I am so excited to be having these conversations with you because there's so much to what you, specifically that last like that you just said, there's so much depth and rich richness there. And yeah, embodying this stuff is, it's next level shit, right? It's, you know, like we can talk about it, we can read about it, but embodying it and learning how to deal with the uncomfortability of embodiment. Yeah, that's next level shit. So I'm really, really grateful for you to be in, in our community, in the birth control community, in the reproductive care community, and um, in my family. So thank you. In closing, drawing it back to you and your story, what are your dreams for the future? Whether it be specific to the reproductive care that you provide others or beyond that, what, what are your dreams? What are you calling into your life? I have so many dreams, but I'll share my dreams in regards to the work um, since that's what this conversation's about. I want to be part of building a strong birth work community, so strong that certifying agents don't have the final say, also so that our clients are being served in the best way possible. And I think the way to do that is by bringing humanists back to the birth experience and not participating in the professionalization of the medical industrial complex and, and what that means for birth work itself. And I also want to create a community full of knowledge sharing and continue to protect and fight for reproductive justice. So what I mean by that is I want our community to love each other <laughs> and peace in the birth work community. <laughs> I can't think of the right words. Can you cut that out? <laughs> no, I'm totally leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> I just want peace. No, I really, I want us to want to share knowledge with each other because that's how we have power. But yeah. we can really make and see that remarkable change by sharing with each other um, and, and rebuilding that community. It's not that scarcity mentality, right? That competitive mentality. That's, that's a westernized game. I don't see any birth worker in any area geographically or other that I'm receiving clients from, I don't see anybody that also is looking for clients or receiving clients as my competition. I'm happy to share clients. I'm happy to give clients away. And I think more of us need to look at it that way because the abundance will come when we work together. And I also want to continue to heal and experience life for what it is. And I hope to share 
life for what it is with the people that I love, the people in our community, my clients, and especially you, Ari. I want us to travel together and maybe offer a traveling workshop together. Um, And I hope that we get more facilitators and knowledge keepers that want to be on our podcast and host workshops and I just hope we grow so big that everybody wants to play with us what a blessing (laughs) oh may it be so may it be so thanks for listening to the birth bruja podcast be sure to check out show notes for a list of resources mentioned during today's episode Are you interested in learning more about the intersections discussed today? Visit birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Offerings range from pre-recorded courses, eBooks, live workshops, and more. Want to keep this podcast running? First, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Second, visit birthbruja.com and check out our store to purchase apparel with one of many badass designs. Until next time, friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.